welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. We'd like to start by just taking a moment of silence, uh, do an 11th step and come in contact with our God, asking for knowledge of His will and the power to carry that out. And please join now in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I will not mind be done. This is a lead meeting, and the theme is, I work it alone with the help of God and others. I standing in the hall, and I'm thinking, I wonder what that means. <laughs> and uh, then Liliana asked me if I'd introduce her, because I've known her longer than anybody else here, because uh, we had done... Uh, a spirituality program in a monastery in New Mexico in uh, 1985 in four weeks, and then went back for two weeks again in March of 86. So, Liliana is from California. She's really a hardworking member of the program, and uh, with that, I think I'll turn it over to her. Thank you. Yeah. My name is Liliana, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Uh, my sobriety date is January the 10th, 1995, and I'm very grateful for this program because without this program, I, I really do not have the capacity to have sobriety. I'm powerless over lust. I'm powerless over uh, sexaholism. I'll tell you uh, maybe a little bit about um, my life um, before I came into the program. Um, the longer I've been in the program, more is revealed to you. And um, I come from a long history of sexaholics. There are lots of sexaholics in my family. Um, generations. Generations. Um, I still don't understand why I was so unfortunate or fortunate to uh, be, you know, be blessed with this disease. I think I was born with it. Um, I think I had a spiritual um, brokenness since um, conception. So um, I just was born into this large extended family. And, um, you know, basically there was uh, other addictions in the family, you know, primarily alcohol, but there were others. And the sexaholism that was in the family was like quiet, secret. So, um, and no one talked about any, any of this. Um, since I was, I was, uh, my parents had to get married as teenagers because here I am, because they got, uh, my mother, uh, came pregnant. And, um, and they proceeded to have, in, in total, eight children. So I had a lot of work to do uh, to t- help them take care of all these children. And they were not really emotionally available to me. And so I had to 
I didn't have to, but I learned to take care of myself. And and that was through masturbation and fantasy. And I um, knew that I shouldn't be doing it, so I tried hard not to most of the time. Um, I think I also was blessed with uh, feeling God's presence in my life quite early before I had, like, words, you know, there's, there's words you don't have, you know, like just like sexaholism. I didn't have the words of sexaholism, um, but they were beautiful words to hear because I didn't know what was wrong with me until I heard that word of the word of sexaholism. Um, and so, but I didn't have the words about, you know, God, and um, but I did feel um, God's presence in my life. And um, I think um, the most uh, presence I felt was about the age of seven. And that's an interesting age because that's when my religion says we get the age of reason. And I and I felt um, or my first communion a really a really deep presence of God. And that was also the year that I was um, fondled by my great grandfather. And um, he um, had the propensity to fondle quite a few of his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and I'm not sure how many more relatives. Um, I have no proof or scientifically, but several of um, of his uh, great-grandchildren, grandchildren, females, have committed suicide that he had fondled. And so I know that <clears throat> there is um, there is a a destructive force in um, in this whole disease. I went to um, I went through my life, you know, you know, you you have your family and your extended family, and you go to school and you learn, and you have the secret life that keeps growing, and you keep thinking, <clears throat> well, I'm I'm going to try not to fantasize. I knew that I should try. I should just try not to, and I would. I did my best, but of course, I, that was my comfort. So I would resort to that when when I needed to, or felt, or when I felt I needed to. Um, things were progressing uh, in my family and also in my disease, and so at adolescence, I had decided well. Um, this was about 13. I said, well, I, I've tried to do it how I understand I'm supposed to do it. You know, what a, what a, um, you know, try to, try to be good, so to speak. I try to do it that way. So that, you know, somehow it's, um, not going to work for me. So I think I need to learn how to, how the world works. You know, how, how does it work in the world? And um, so that would mean, you know, to me, well, I, I'll probably have to learn how to smoke and learn how to drink because, you know, that's what I saw the world doing around me. So, um, you know, I did my best to um, to learn those things outward, you know, to, to learn those things. I, I, I was kind of more like a failure at those things, but I had my secret life that I kept um, trying, you know, it was secret. Nobody talked about sex. But I did uh, become uh, boy crazy, and I, I discovered 
you know, you could kiss, you could kiss. And I, I got my first hint that maybe something was different about the way I did things than other girls. Because there were other girls who were boy crazy too. But I didn't want to just stick with one. I just wanted to, you know, it was like after that one, well, next, next. And I, um, I decided, um, my cousin told me that the boys were talking about me because it was noted. So I got my first um, um, red light that it was known that there was something about me. Um, so I said, well, I, now I guess I have to go steady before I could kiss a boy. So I started to, you know, you go steady, well, then you have to break up. Then you go steady and you break up. Well, one of my steady boyfriends, um, in a very forceful way, introduced me to sex. And I didn't really understand that that's how it worked. So it was like a pretty, pretty shock, pretty shocking, but, um, I can say it was also pretty addicting. And, um, my main worry at that time was that now that my world was over, because I either had to get married to this guy and I was only 14, or I had to, um, figure out how I was going to support myself. Because if I didn't marry him, I probably wouldn't marry anyone. So that seemed like a, a really hard dilemma. Um, I think, um, again, I was trying to, what we call, white-knuckle it. And um, I thought, well, I'll have to earn a living. I better concentrate on my studies more, and I, I want to go to college. So... Um, I just tried to stay away from situations that would um, tempt me. Uh, my next big episode came when I went to, I got a job. I had a little job before, but then I finally got a part-time job after high school. And um, my employer, um, uh, you know, basically decided that he would, he would well, he would seduce me and show me more that you know about more about sex, and I think that's when I really kind of the red light went on for me um, because I did get into it, and it was against my morals. Um, so it was it was pretty a hard time for me. Um, that was my last year in high school. I was pretty miserable. Home life was deteriorating. Uh, I think my relationship with my higher power was uh, pretty low, and I did get into college. And I found college a very lonely experience. I didn't know anybody. Um, it was kind of like an accident that I got in. They have a 2% rule. They would let people who didn't qualify in, because they had this 2% that they would let in. At that, This was 1961. Um, but I really wasn't prepared for, um, for all that in college and, and, um, I, I did, um, um, with, I just, I, I started to act out sexually and have casual sex. And all that was very depressing. Um, and I felt very depressed. 
<clears throat> I um, right before I met, I started going with the the fellow that I did marry. <clears throat> my my father, who was basically a, you know pretty bad alcoholic at the time, he said, you know something's wrong with you. You're depressed. And I thought, wow, you know this is terrible. They know that I'm depressed because I I really didn't want people to know these kind of things about me. So anyway, I did find a boyfriend, and and we were compatible, I thought, Um, basically very sexually compatible, and um, and we we um, were both struggling through college. As it turned out, I flunked out, and um, so I was at this low point. I didn't really know what to do with my life, and he answered it for me. He said, "Well, let's get married." So that was my answer to to any problems I might have sexually, to problems of um, trying to get a higher education. And um, I was 19. And um, I, I really uh, thought that something dramatic happens when you um, get married, you, like you become mature. And I, um, I didn't. So we, we, uh, I went back to school after my child was born. And, um, not, you know, it was, it was very stabilizing to be married. Uh, we were very poor, so we had no, no money to go anywhere but, but to study. So we studied. And I had a child anyway. And, uh, things went along. We were, we were struggling. And, uh, any minor tempt- temptations I had, I could, like um, blow them off, so to speak, and um, and finally, um, my brother was killed in Vietnam, and that kind of shuttered my my bubble about the world, about what life was, about, and I had no coping skills. So a sexaholic without coping skills will resort back to their fantasies, their um, that kind of inward, you know, lost inside themselves. And that's exactly where I was, even though my spouse, my husband, tried to help. He knew I was, I was in a bad place. He tried to help. And I, I just, I just was not responsive or connected with him at that time. So anyway, I started to, um, that was like the last year of our marriage, and I, I started to have affairs. And this was like uh, 1970. And it came to me that if I could get out of this marriage, then if I had affairs, I wouldn't feel guilty. So that, you know, we went to marriage counseling. I actually thought, well, by some miracle, maybe the marriage counselor could help us. And... um I, the marriage counselor did not know what was going on at all, and finally, he pulled me to the side, and he said, "What? Why aren't you sleeping at night?" And I said, "Because I had an affair." And um, um, so, so anyway, I, I, I'm glad I did say that, but it, it, it just, um, I think it was a sex, a sexaholism that just says, you know, you can, you won't feel guilty, you can be okay, you can, you, you, um. You've already graduated from college. You know, you can support yourself. And I got out of the marriage. And um, 
so so basically my life um then really became harder and more depressing because casual affairs are very depressing casual sex was very depressing and um I I uh I thought well maybe I have some problems maybe I have emotional problems and so I did start going to therapy I thought well therapy should should help me they have answers this is not, these are the 70s they they were doing a lot of crazy things so I I did try therapy very intensely and I I graduated from graduate school through all this um all this stuff and um then I um Another red light went on because I became pregnant. And I I had been with four different men, so I had no idea who the father was. And I chose to do the expedient thing, which was I got an abortion. But that that only increased my depression. And um so what 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 I knew is that Something was really wrong, and I didn't know what it was, and I didn't want to have casual sex, but somehow I seemed to still do it, and um, I, I wanted to find a way to stop. So I said, well, therapy couldn't do it, because this is too much. This is too powerful. And I didn't even have the word lust too much in my vocabulary. I said... Well, God can do it. Therapy can't do it, but God can do it. So I said, I got back um, into my my religion that I had been raised in, and went to confession, and and um, went to monasteries, and um, you know, really thought that God could just take this away from me. And it was a blessed day that um, Dear Abby wrote about Sexaholics Anonymous, and I read that article in the early 80s. And it was a blessed day because, you know, when you search for your life, all your life, and you want to know what is wrong, and and you don't have a word, and finally you have a word. And I, um, I sent for the material at Tissimi Valley, and I felt very, very blessed to... Um, Get the, the information from Simi Valley. They send me a lot of it. The, the, I live in, in San Diego. The closest meeting was, it was in West LA. And, uh, I decided that God and I were going to fix this. I really didn't have to go to those meetings. And, um, and so I, I was just intensely trying to do kind of spiritual practices in order for God to just Come in and zap me. But it, instead, this was, um, we started in 83. And I, I didn't understand why my, my life kept going downhill. Just kept going downhill. And although I wouldn't come into, um, to anything like SA, because, uh, basically because it was, I thought it was a program mainly with men, I, um, I did have, a casual affair that was a, not a good judgment of mine. And um, what I did was um, I was in so much pain about that that I went to adult children for alcoholics. 
And uh, that was my beginning. This was in October of 85 of 12-step spiritual recovery. And I, I'm very, uh, you know, I think I think God, you know, really helped me out because that was something that, well, yeah, I, you know, I could go in there and, and listen and I could learn a little bit. And I could, um, I could find people that, that, um, were in as much pain as I was in. So that, that was a blessing. But my life kept going downhill because I did stop acting out with casual sex, but I increased the masturbation and the fantasy. It went, it just like took off. And it was taking more and more of my time and I did recognize the connection that the more I was into this um, masturbation and fantasy, the less I was able to connect with other people. That that I could figure out. So, um, but, you know, I, I, I just kept thinking God was going to take care of it, and I was kind of wondering when it was going to happen. And questioning, well, how is it that I'm doing this church business, I'm going to this ACA, and... Um, my life is going downhill. I mean, it was just like a downhill path. So finally, um, I got involved um, in management where I work. And um, that, all your character defects come out if, if you haven't been in management before. They seem to come out right about that time. So, so I... Um, I was getting kind of really, really worried. And I had a um, confrontation with my my direct boss. It took us um, took us about a year where he got to um, beat me up on a pretty regular basis, not physically, but you know, kind of figuratively. And I just kept complaining and complaining about this to his superiors. And finally, uh, I was shocked, but his superiors asked him to leave. And uh, and it has to do with um, womanizing. I, you know, I couldn't get him on other aspects, but I got him on womanizing. And he left. And that was in December of 88. I, I did kiss the ground when he left thought that was pretty terrific, but I felt like a hypocrite because I knew that I had um, this disease of, of um, sexaholism. And about that time, I had heard that sexaholism had come to San Diego, and there was an orientation meeting, and um, my girlfriend said that she would meet me there, and, and she'd go with me. Um... So that first night, of course, she forgot, and I and I went to an orientation meeting, and um, it was um, it was a real blessing because I knew that night that I would never have to masturbate again if I didn't want to, because there was people there that would help me. There was a meeting that would help me, and that was the start of my journey into um, my spiritual recovery in Sexaholics Anonymous. And I, um, I, of course, be, you know, being me, and I had already suffered all these years, and I was having a discussion with God, I said, well, the thing is, you know, 
probably some of these guys are going to have to be here for a long time, but I think, God, you and I could cure me in a year. I'm going to do everything they tell me to do for one year, and then I think that that'll, that'll be enough for me. Because I had already suffered a lot, and um, and uh, I thought that that's how it would work. So they, the more meetings I could get in, the better. Doing my steps, they wanted me you know, to do my steps, they wanted me to do service, anything, anything I could do, because it was only going to be a year. You know, it's like being a year in prison. You just go for it, and you do everything you can, and... At the end of the year, I was pretty exhausted doing all this stuff. And um, it's pretty exhausting running around and getting all excited about recovery, all that adrenaline about recovery. And um, it would be the next over the next five years that I would learn about that there is a difference between uh, sobriety and um, recovery. I think I, I kind of learned, I kept, you know, I, I learned to be, like, sober, but uh, the foundation was not there. And um, I began to feel resentful. And it, it first came out big with um, somebody, uh, and I remember at our 92 International Conference in San Diego, I was doing some service, and somebody I was doing service with, I resented him. And, and then I resented my father, and then I re, oh I re, I resented the SA in San Diego, and then it just went on like this. And um, ninety four was my down year, down down year. Um, and I had a major slip. And I knew in my head that I was going to continue to go to SA. And it would probably be humiliating. And um, that I had to do this program different than I did at the first five years. First five years, um, you know, I, I basically I didn't have I didn't have any recovery. I had sobriety. I didn't have recovery, and then I lost the sobriety. So. Um, I, I went to um, all women's AA conference in San Diego. What they forgot to tell me was that it was an all black woman's AA conference. <laughs> Nobody mentioned that to me. So I was I um uh, I got it straight from these women. You know, you know, you're supposed to hang with the woman and you you know and and you're supposed to, you know, Plug up your ears and, I mean, open your ears and plug up your mouth and just shut up and just do what you're told. And, I mean, they didn't, you know, I'm saying it nice. They didn't even say it that that nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these women, they're you know, like, they drag themselves off the gutter, you know, and they, so, you know, I had to listen to them and, you know, they called you babies and, you know, they just, uh, so I said, well, you know, I got to do this because, you know, these women are, they're pretty hardy, so. I've got to learn what they have to teach. And um, uh, so those kinds of, I started including those kind of experiences and I started, you know, I kept going to SA in San Diego and I decided also to uh, to um, include uh, these conferences in my agenda. The only time I would do a conference is 
in the first five years of this program is if, it, if I could drive to it, like if it was in Orange County, if it was in San Diego. But, you know, I would never go to Cleveland. I'd never go to Chicago, Portland, you know, Newark, forget it. You know, I'd never go to places like that. But I said I, I have to uh, include those places in my in my recovery, you know, I have to. And um, the other thing I decided to do is, um, and this wasn't a really big sacrifice, but I just gave away my TV. No TV in my house. And um, and that was that was nice. That was that was actually a blessing uh, and and easy. So so now I had to learn to do the, the program in a different way. And um, at the Chicago conference, I said, "Oh God, I have to find I have to find a sponsor somewhere." They had all all this all these people. That was three years ago. They had the biggest conference that I've ever seen in FA. And I said, oh, and of course the conference was over and I still hadn't done my, my have-to list by a sponsor and I did ask someone what, what he thought and he gave me two names and I, I got a sponsor. And I, I never saw her again but we kept talking on the telephone and she walked me through the, the steps and that was wonderful. That was a blessing. I really got to know my character defects, um, by talking on the telephone and doing my steps. I um you know I I've I've tried to and I I've tried to write about my story and I um I have it in my computer and you know it it's not an easy story to um to talk about and I realize that that because for most most of my life I've not talked to anyone or had people to talk to, that I had to force myself to talk and to tell my story. And so, you know, just in coming to these conferences, you get And, you know, I, I just know that I, I need to do that kind of thing, and this, this is where I get more of an opportunity, because uh, in San Diego currently there are, are only two active women, in the program, and um, and so I, I've just learned, you know, that that this is this is real helpful to me, and to talk. Um, I um, I had to kind of laugh. I they called me. I forget when. Uh, Larry and and told me if he, if I would do a lead meeting, and then he explained what a lead meeting is. I'm supposed to say um, what happened. No what it was like, what happened, and, and what it's like now. And um, and then he wanted a title. And I first thing out of my mind is like, well, how could this happen to a nice girl like me? That was my first title. And I said, no, nah, I, like, I don't like that title. So then I said, the next title, I said, well, it's been a long, lonely journey. And he said, oh, that doesn't sound too hopeful. <laughs> So I said, oh, wow, yeah, you're right. I, we got to have some hope here. So I said, I have a lot of hope, so uh, I want to express some hope. So he, we just kept talking and everything. And it is kind of a character defect of mine that, that I do tend to um, try to figure out things on my own, and and then I run to God and others. You know, and the, and the gift for me has been that 
I really was convinced that God and I could do this. And um, for whatever reason, the way it works, it's God and others. It's not just others, and it's not just God. And you can have maybe one of those going really well, but if you don't have the other one too, you know, the downhill slide will be there. And, um, and I think that no far, no, no matter how far down you've gone, that there'll always be an opportunity to help another. And if I had been cured instantly, which was my heart's desire, I'm sure that I would not, you know, I would be out there, uh, being an arrogant, egotistical, um, conservative, you know, asshole. But, you know, because I have to be in these rooms, I get to be humble, I get to learn about humility and character defects and, and, um, all those, all those wonderful things that we humans have. And if you're sexaholic, you have them probably even more. So I get to, I get to sit in these rooms and learn about this. And, um, and in doing service, I get to learn about my character defects. You know, I, I have, um, tried to, um, sponsor other women. I have not been great at it. Uh, I'm probably a little bit too easy. Sometimes when I tell them to do things and they don't do it, I get pissed off about it, but I, I, I sort of say, well, they're where they're at. I try to rationalize it. So I, I, I don't know the answer. I, I just kind of believe everybody is doing the best that they can at the time. But what I have learned is that you follow directions. And, um, this white book is, you know, it's just a, a great book. I, I also read, you know, the the, um, the big book of AA. Um, but the other day I went to my home meeting, and uh, there was only one human being there, and my higher power, and the white book. So we had a meeting, God and I, and and the white book. Um, I, um, I remember it was the 97, I w- worked on a conference in San Diego, a one day conference, and I was doing service, and all my character defects came out. And I thought, how am I gonna ever be able to help out in San Diego if we ever have an international there again? If, you know, if I'm this immature, if I blow up when some, somebody does something that is, you know, you know, how am I going to be able to help? And I don't know the answer. Um, I'll have to face it when that happens, but, but I, I just know that, that if I keep coming to these rooms, um, that, that, that part of it. One of the things is I, I have a management job that's very stressful. And another thing that I decided when I had lost my sobriety and and uh, took me about seven months to get it back is that basically I would do on the average of a meeting every day because I um, I needed a foundation and I needed a good foundation. I did not um, 
I did not want to fall. That, you know, the way I fell. I mean, I'm not saying that I won't ever slip because that's not, uh, I'm a human being and, but I'm saying that, 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 uh, I wanted, whatever happens in my life, I wanted to have a good foundation of this program. And so, um, uh, I wasn't able to, all those meetings are not, uh, essay because I'm not able to, they're not that many, but, but I, that, you know, there are a lot of good meetings, fortunately, in other fellowships too in, in my area, so I'm able to get to about a meeting a day. And, um, I've also learned, uh, at first, the first year since I found the solution, I went around blabbing it to people that really didn't understand what I was talking about or why I was so enthused about it. Uh, either my friends. And, um, I've learned to be more discreet about that. You know, I, I just have learned that it's, it, discretion is, is okay. And, um, uh, that, you know, if the time comes that I'm going to share that, then, then, then it will come. Um, I, I keep learning a lot of, a, a lot of things in these rooms, and I have a lot of hope. I get hope when I see other sexaholics Walking through what they walk through and being sober just gives me a whole lot of hope. I, um, I do have, um, problems in, um, that I'm, I'm still, uh, dealing with in terms of my challenges in SA. And that's, that's in when I'm stressed out, I, I get into fantasy. And I have, you know, I have my resentments, and I have to I have to do step work on them. So, um, I what I have found, just to sum it up, is that there was a certain cultural that helped me to become a really good sexaholic, and that was being in isolation, growing up in isolation and secrecy, fear, hate. Loneliness, anger, shame, rejection, resentment. And there's a, there's another culture that I'm in, the SA fellowship, that could get me into recovering from this, um, into recovering, continuing recovery for sexaholism. And that's, that's the honesty, the openness, the willingness, the love, the tolerance, the fellowship, the, the meetings, the powerlessness, just knowing, you know, that how powerless I am, that builds a culture of of uh, sobriety and of recovery. And um, I'm very grateful for you all, to you all, for for being in Sexaholics Anonymous. It takes a lot of courage to keep coming back and to um, to learn to love yourself. So thank you. Yeah, but we need to go to 4.30. This goes until 4.30, so uh, just uh, maybe have a little bit of sharing before we close. And one of the reasons I was intrigued by the, uh, you know, the title, I Work It Alone, is the first thing that caught my eyes. That's That's been a killer for me when I work it alone. You know, when I try to do it in isolation, it says in the... Uh, 
solution, isolating obsession with sex and self, that's always a killer. And it's really gotten me several times recently, you know, 93, 98, and, and 97 too. And so that I have just a little less than four months of sobriety right now. And it's because of that isolation, you know, going back into isolation. Um, there's a guy in our program in New Jersey, and what he says is that uh, he uh, he can talk to God all he wants, and so on and so forth. You know, you can talk to people all the time, but unless he talks to God, uh, he he doesn't. He's not able to stay sober. And I tell him I talk to God a lot myself, but if I don't talk to you people, I'm dead. You know. And the miracle has been any time I've been like almost overwhelmed by this whole thing. If I call one of you people, it's 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 almost gone immediately. And I don't have to tell you a lot of details. I mean, I've never had to explain things in great detail to anybody I've ever called. Everybody, they seem to know, you know, for some reason or other. <laughs> and and just the idea that, and just talking about it has helped me, too. I'm not saying that God is dumb, but I am saying that, uh, you know, I, I that's my experience. And my hope is that I, if, if I talk to God and to you, I'm safe. And it's really worked. So you have a few more minutes. Uh, if anybody wants to share, you have to, I guess, come up and use this one and just hold it. Hello, everyone. I'm uh, Paul, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Hi, Paul. My sobriety date is June 25th, 89. Um, thank you, Liliana, for your sharing. Um, uh, came in the program the same year. It's nice to see somebody comes in the same year and um, the thing uh, funny thing I had a very similar experience in 94 late 94 five years sober and uh, looking back at it now it was uh, I could see how it happened but I too hit a bottom where I was uh, about to act out about to lose my sobriety I was in a hotel room alone um, I knew you know it was uh, the isolation and and the way things were going in my life at that time I knew it was I had to make a choice and uh, I was I did not want to lose my sobriety I didn't want to go out there but uh, I uh, was at the point where I didn't think I had any other choice and I took made one last ditch to to save uh, myself and uh, I got down on my knees and I prayed um, and expressed my powerlessness and uh, I too had to come back out of that and knew I had to rebuild or build I had to build a foundation I too um, was on those, during those first five years was basically uh, living through activism and uh, or uh, staying sober on activism, being uh, so grateful, you know, to to find a program to put a label on this problem, um, to learn about lust, um, and that I believe kept me sober for five years, and it was good sobriety, but I didn't have the the foundation, you know, I, I wasn't dealing with. I was dealing with the symptom, but not with the problems. And I, uh, right now, today, uh, my biggest challenge, I think, uh, is self-pity. 
I, uh, <clears throat> uh, resentment is there, uh, rage is there, but, uh, self-pity, uh, is something that I turn over on a, on a constant basis. Uh, I cannot afford to go into self-pity. Uh, thanks again. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm sexaholic. Thanks for your lead. I really appreciate your, your honesty and sharing that. I know it was difficult to share part of that. I just really appreciate that. Uh, I think the thing I really want to comment on is what you said about meetings. And I just uh, just have to say how much meetings really mean to me. Uh, we've got two meetings down in Mansfield. They're small. Uh, sometimes it's just two or three people, uh, sometimes as many as six, but uh, good meetings. And just uh, I really need those. But the other thing is is that, you know, we travel. You know, we come up to Akron, we come to Canton, we go to Cleveland, and uh, we just get out there and see what, you know, God's doing in different areas and uh, recovery in different cities. And uh, I just I just need meetings. I need at least three meetings a week. I mean, I, I can't. I almost can't do it on less than that. And uh, when things are tough, you know, I need more. And it just, it's just so good. I just know, I just feel so much better. Uh, end of the week, I've had, you know, three, four meetings under my belt. You know, I just feel so much better. And the weeks where things get in the way and, uh, uh, you know, I miss a meeting or two or something like that, I just start to feel like I'm, I'm losing, I'm sucking air. You know, I'm just, just not quite making it, you know. And, it's just so good. It's the easy way for me to do it is to go to a lot of meetings. And so when you said that, I just was really encouraged. Thanks. Anyone else? I'm Kathy. I'm a sexaholic, and my sobriety date is um, September 24, And I really, really appreciated your story, Liliana. I can relate to... Um, the part about God and you would able would be able to cure this problem, and I was very been a very religious person myself, and I was in a 12-step spiritual program in my church when I came out of denial with my sex addiction, and I had a sponsor in that program, the pastor's wife. She knew nothing about addiction, um, and. When I turned it over to God and I had three weeks sobriety, I thought I was cured. I went back to my 12-step group at church. I shared my whole story, my sexaholic story, and how God had healed me. Two weeks later, I was in the arms of a married man. Um, and I knew I had a problem, and I needed more than God, and I needed more than my church. And... Um, I've just been very, very grateful for the SA program. Um, it's been very enlightening. It's been a real growing experience. And I just thank everybody that's, that's here. And thank you again. In the 12 and 12, at some time, uh, some place it says, I think in the third step it says, uh, people tried religion and they wondered why that didn't work in it. Uh, the answer that they give is that we, we didn't try it God's way. We tried it our way and that we had never really said, thy will be done. And, and I had wanted God to heal me according to my prescription, by the way, and, and also my timetable. And, and if he had done it that way, then, then it would be, I would be God and he wouldn't be God. 
And you'd be in a lot of trouble, all right? <laughs> so let's just say the Our Father together, okay? A lot of trouble. <laughs>